Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. This June marked 50 years of occupation of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights and East Jerusalem by Israel. Israel annexed East Jerusalem in 1967. In December 1981, Israel formally annexed the Golan Heights. Neither annexation was accepted by the international community. On December 6, 2017, the United States, against international consensus, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which has intensified tensions in the region. This episode focuses on the continuous violation of the human rights of the Palestinian people living within East Jerusalem, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, including but not limited to the denial of self-determination and the right to the exploitation of their own resources, free speech and assembly, freedom of movement, liberty and bodily security. Israel's continued use and depletion of Palestinian natural resources, including the rich Jordan Valley, as well as its encouragement of settlements in the West Bank, resulting in non-contiguous Palestinian territory, may directly enfeeble any independent Palestinian state. The focus on the occupied territories is not to diminish the continuing denial of return or compensation to the millions of Palestinian refugees across the world that were forced from their homes in 1948 and 1967, nor the continuing unequal treatment that Palestinians receive within Israel. Earlier in the year, Richard Falk, former UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, co-authored an instructive report with Virginia Tilley on the apartheid aspects of Israeli policy both within and outside the Occupied Territories. This tapestry of tragedy is not simply weaved by Israel. The 1948 annexation of wider territory cannot be understood without taking into account the Shoah, nor the fact that Jewish persons wishing to leave Europe after World War II were not welcomed with open arms across the world, nor the history of the continued persecution of the Jewish people. Further, this tragedy cannot be fully appreciated without understanding the continuing refusal by the majority of nations across the world, none the least Israel's neighboring states, to grant asylum and full citizenship to Palestinian people that fled the 1948 and 1967 wars. Only South Africa grants asylum to Palestinians per se, without their needing to prove any special persecution or denial of UNRWA rights, as if placement in a refugee camp is somehow a permanent and viable solution to living a fulfilling life. The world, not just Israel, has been complicit in creating millions of people spanning across four generations that are denied a right to nationality and to a permanent home and that have been used as bargaining chips in a brutal conflict. We are all complicit in their tragedy. It is simply beyond the scope of this episode to address all of these issues. This episode aims to provide a lens into the life of Palestinian peoples living in the occupied territories and the perpetual persecution they endure. On November 2, 2017, I met with Emir Kilutz, the spokesperson for B'Tselem, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, to discuss B'Tselem's work and the human rights of Palestinians living in the occupied territories today. Welcome to Gravity, Emir. Thank you for having me. May you please tell our audience about the work of your organization, B'Tselem, since your establishment in 1989? Sure. So... Uh, the organization was founded by a group of uh, journalists, academic, parliament members uh, who have noticed during the height of the first Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising, that there was a lack of credible information coming out of what was happening in the territories. And to this day, we are primarily a research and information center. Um, we document human rights violations. We analyze uh, specific policies and trends that we recognize, and we make that information available to the public. 
Um, the way we work is we have Palestinian field researchers who work and live in their communities, and they are our sort of foundation and access to the field. Um, whenever there's an incident, they are sent to investigate, um, to collect testimonies, primary uh, evidence, any kind of supporting documentation that can help us uh, fully understand what took place. Um, and then that information is sent to the Jerusalem office where it is processed by our data coordination team uh, before, it is, uh, before it becomes a written uh, document that is uh, made available to the public. Um, we also uh, publish three to four reports each year, which are lengthier documents um, where we do these in-depth analyses of, uh, of policies and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and we have also uh, made some changes uh, over the years, which um, we will have a chance to discuss later uh, today. Um, but uh, one of the significant ones that I want to put out there right away is that we are calling on the international community to put pressure on Israel to change its policies because we don't see at this point um, any possibility of meaningful change coming from within Israeli um, state mechanisms and society. Um, at, at this point, 50 years into the occupation, um, Israel cannot be called a democracy. Um, the, you know, in this polity, in this political structure that is Israel, um, there are 13 million people living under its control between the Jordan River and uh, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, but only 8 million of them get to vote. 5 million of them are Palestinians living under military rule. Um, so you can call this polity many different names, you can describe it in many words, but a democracy is not one of them. In 2007, you launched your citizenship journalism project, dispersing cameras to Palestinians living in the occupied territories, and you post the videos to your site. What has been the reaction from the Palestinian people in taking up this journalist role and within Israel and seeing these videos? Do the Israeli Defense Forces react differently when being filmed and do they ever prevent filming? So our camera project that was uh, started, as you said, in 2007, um, uh, in it we work with Palestinian volunteers. We have about 200 volunteers who, um, are, uh, who receive cameras and training by B'Tselem uh, to document their own life, their own lived experience under uh, Israel's military rule. Um, we don't treat them as journalists. So this is, it's a little technical, but it's important. We never send them on missions, right? Um, they simply document uh, violations that they experience. So one of the strengths of the project has been that it enabled us to show to people very directly things that previously we could only talk about. So for example, um, settler violence um, or um, soldiers entering a family's home of the night, waking up all the kids, um, taking them to the living room, taking their pictures, and then moving on to the next house. This, this is something that happens routinely um, as part of the routine of the occupation, but the journalist would never be positioned to document these experiences, whereas the Palestinian living in their own homes um, are the people who can do it. Um, so uh, it enabled us to do that and also to put the occupation on the agenda, on the public uh, agenda, the agenda of the media and public discourse, um, which uh, over the years has, has drifted away um, from this issue um, as part of the prevalent culture of denial uh, around anything that relates to the occupation in Israel. It has become increasingly difficult to talk about the occupation. 
um, in Israeli, Israeli uh, media. And so when uh, uh, powerful visual documentation comes out, um, it, you know, it goes viral, it is seen by millions of people around the world, and then it also makes it into every Israeli living room through the media. Um, in terms of the Palestinians who participate in the project, you know, some of them have said that they feel a little more safe behind the camera. Um, you know, there's an effect of distancing in a way um, and a, a greater sense of agency um, and a certain performativity even to just the act of taking up a camera and documenting. Um, and, and have commented that they think that soldiers, uh, that, that it affected the soldiers' behavior as well, or the security forces' behavior as well. Um, but it's important to acknowledge that obviously the underlying power structure doesn't change. It's still um, these armed security forces that are there to occupy those people. Um, and, uh, and the camera's presence does, doesn't change that uh, basic factor. And there have been cases where cameras, you know, where photographers have been stopped um, uh, from filming, have been prevented uh, from filming. Um, cameras have been confiscated, memory cards have been deleted, um, and there has been some arrests even of, uh, of people who, uh, who documented. Um, one of the more well-known uh, cases is uh, Imad Abu Shamsia, who, um, who filmed the video of Elor Azariah shooting uh, Abdel Fattah HaSharif in Hebron. Uh, extrajudicially killing him uh, after he was laying on the ground incapitated for 11 minutes. Um, and uh, that uh, created a big storm within Israeli uh, society and uh, a lot of international attention as well. Um, and he has been targeted. Uh, Imad himself, uh, the volunteer, has been uh, targeted and harassed and prevented by the Hebron police from pressing charges, actually. Um, against uh, the settlers who, who have harassed him. And what is the basis of preventing him from pursuing these charges? There is no legal basis. It's, um, it's more a matter of the practice uh, of, of things right. the, way, the way they are in, you know, in, in practice, in reality. Right, threatening him. And then um, what is the basis for the arrests? You said that sometimes the idea for arrests people that videotape them? Is that, again, there's no legal basis, they just arrest them? Yes, yeah, so legally, um, um, Palestinians are allowed to film. Um, uh, and under most circumstances, they are allowed to film um, security forces uh, during their work. Um, so, uh, you know, the, 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 the reasoning that would be given to the arrest would be different. It wouldn't be filming, but, you know, it can be any other pretext that is used for the arrest. In 2002, Israel decided to construct a separation barrier for state and security reasons between Israel and the West Bank. However, the wall seems to go far beyond the green line. Its course and construction deemed illegal by the International Court of Justice in 2003 for a number of reasons, but most importantly, providing a far complete of a new border advancing beyond the green line. I also believe the Israeli High Court deemed the wall too expansive to be legal under Israeli law. What areas of the West Bank beyond the Green Line have been caught by this wall and how has its construction affected the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank, including within the closed military zone and in restricting freedom of movement more generally for the Palestinian people? Yes, so definitely the construction of the separation barrier. Um, it's not actually a physical wall in, in most of the areas. It's, it's a wall 
um, that is about eight to nine meters high uh, concrete wall, uh, especially in urban areas. Um, otherwise, it's more like a border. Um, and, and definitely uh, part of what it does is set, uh, set facts on the ground, which has been Israeli policy all these years since the occupation began. Um, uh, what makes that very clear, I think, are two numbers. First of all, 85% of it is built inside the West Bank, so on Palestinian land. Um, and the other is that the length of the green line, the so-called green line, which marks um, the difference between Israel proper and the occupied territories, the length of the green line is 320 kilometers, whereas the length of the full route of the separation uh, barrier um, is 712 kilometers, oh. so almost twice as long, right? And I, I, I invite uh, the listeners to go on our website and look at the map and just see how it curves around settlements and on Palestinian land to, to uh, very easily perceive what it does. Um, it, uh, in terms of, uh, of its impacts on Palestinians, um, beyond the sort of obvious movement of restrict, uh, restriction of movement, freedom of movement that we'll discuss later, um, it has separated uh, uh, Palestinians of about 150 communities uh, from their lands, from their agriculture um, lands. And also there are about 100,000 Palestinians who live in the area that was created between the separation barrier and uh, the Green Line. And that has very grave effects on their lives because almost every action um, uh, requires a permit by the civil administration, which is the um, arm of the military that is in charge of civil matters in the occupied territories including maintaining their uh, legal right to live in their own homes. So they need to apply uh, for a permit to stay a permanent resident in their own homes uh, minimally every two years, sometimes more often than that. Um, on the other hand, Israelis or Jews who are uh, allowed to immigrate to Israel uh, because of the law of return can move freely into this area. So, you know, this sort of gets into these two separate systems of law that we'll discuss soon as well. Whatever restrictions of movement does Israel impose on the Palestinian people between the occupied territories, within each occupied territory, to Israel and to the outside world? How does this impact the Palestinians in their ability to seek employment, medical treatment, higher education and travel? And in particular, I'd like to discuss what's currently happening in Hebron. Yeah, so uh, movement restrictions is one of the main mechanisms, one of the main instruments of control of Palestinians. And uh, as you said, Israel controls the movement of Palestinians within the occupied territories, um, between the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza, um, and also of uh, Palestinians who wish to go abroad. Uh, and, and of course, into Israel uh, for work mostly or also for uh, medical treatments sometimes. Um, Israel requires uh, Palestinians to obtain a permit um, if they want to move between the, um, the West Bank and the Gaza or into Israel, and it maintains full authority on approving or denying these permits without giving any reasoning. Um, so uh, one of the main aspects of the, of the practice as a whole of restricting uh, um, the freedom of movement of Palestinians is that they are forced to live in this constant uncertainty. Um, they have no way of knowing how long it's going to take to go to work today. 
um, or to go to visit their family or to get to a hospital. Um, so uh, time is, uh, is, you know, the, the, their control over time is to a large extent uh, prevented uh, from them. And this, you know, these are examples from personal lives, uh, but of course this has far-reaching consequences in terms of the ability to develop and sustain an economy. Um, if we think of it in a sort of in the larger scale. Um, there are currently 89 checkpoints in the West Bank. Um, some of them are manned, some of them are not, or uh, uh, meant part of the time. Uh, most of them are inside the West Bank itself, and 39 are on entry points into Israel from the West Bank. And in addition to those, there are hundreds of flying checkpoints that are put every year uh, by the military, um, sometimes for just a few hours, um, and uh, they can be in the form of uh, just uh, dirt piles blocking a road, blocking an entrance to a village, or um, um, concrete cubes, um, etc. And, uh, and then Gaza um, is fully under siege, uh, but uh, we will talk about that uh, in greater detail, but in terms of freedom of movement, um, Israel has uh, almost full control over who goes in and out of the Strip. Um, Hebron is a particularly ugly manifestation of the occupation. Um, this is the only urban center, together with East Jerusalem, where um, settlers move to live in the midst of a Palestinian population. So generally speaking, the settlements are closed military zones. Palestinians are not allowed on them without a permit. Um, and so the doctrine is one of separation of, of the populations. Here, the doctrine is also a separation of populations, but within, in the middle of a city, in the middle of a uh, Palestinian city. Um, and Israeli policy in Hebron really is designed to empty the city center of its Palestinian residents. Um, there are about 800 uh, settlers living in uh, Hebron currently, and about 600 soldiers who are guarding them at every given moment. So really- It's a huge incredible. ratio. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is part of the, the effects that this brings to the Palestinian population when this foreign military presence is there in such huge numbers to protect the settlers, not the Palestinians themselves. Um, so there's a lot of friction, a lot of violence, a lot of arrests, um, and so on and so forth. In terms of movement restrictions, um, there are dozens of checkpoints, um, and there are main streets in Hebron that are where Palestinians are forbidden from uh, accessing. So they are only uh, they are only for the use of uh, the Jewish settlers. Um, uh, and uh, in Tel Rumeda, just another example, which is the neighborhood of uh, of Hebron. Um, only the residents of the neighborhood are allowed to, to access the neighborhood. So there's, there's a list, a checkpoint entering the uh, neighborhood. If you're not on the list, you're, you can't go there. So if you live there, you can't have a friend over, you can't have a family visit, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and these policies are incrementally increasing. So we have documented over the years how these, uh, little by little, um, uh, this, this policy intensifies, again, with the intent of uh, transferring the Palestinians who still live in the city center out of there.
I read on your site that there was a family with um, young children that uh, wanted to move house and they were only wanting to move house three blocks, but they were prevented from accessing with their moving van uh, a couple of streets that they needed to. So then they had to take everything by hand and go a very extended route around to get to their new house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why are they a threat? <laughs> They're not, right? It's- right. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Israel always uses um, security justification to, to sort of, you know, as a pretext for any, almost any action that it takes. But that has, like over the years, that has been completely emptied of content. Um, holding a whole people under your control against their will transferring your own population uh, into the occupied territories, which is against international law, that cannot be justified uh, for security reasons, right? And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's very difficult to understand the specific policies and the specific practices without coming to terms with the big picture, um, which is that Israel is striving towards controlling as much land and resources as possible with as few Palestinians on it as possible. So both of these things are at play uh, simultaneously. Um, and, and then the little bits that make up this reality kind of fall into place. Right. So make life as difficult as possible and hopefully you'll just go away. Mm-hmm. Go away. Either abroad. Right. Or to one of the enclaves that Israel currently allows for Palestinians to exist in, but that are disconnected from one another and that cannot thrive because um, they have no possibility of developing or sustaining an economy and they are disconnected from um, the resources that are needed for their future development. And in terms of leaving abroad, if you leave abroad for a few years, you might lose your residency in the occupied territories, correct? Uh, mostly in East Jerusalem, that would be where, um, where Israel has granted the Palestinian East Jerusalemites a status of a permanent resident. Unlike, so although it annexed East Jerusalem, it didn't turn the the people there into citizens. Ah, see, I had a question later on about East Jerusalem, and maybe we'll just go into it now. Now, Israel did formally annex uh, East Jerusalem in 67, even though the international community has not recognized this annexation. And uh, it seems that life is very difficult for Palestinians in East Jerusalem. How do Israeli policies such as center of life residency restrictions, which uh, you just mentioned, separation barriers and restrictions on construction thwart a thriving Palestinian population in Jerusalem? And I believe you've already said that the primary purpose is to make life difficult. So is the primary purpose there to uh, have Palestinians leave the city? Absolutely. Yes. Um, Generally speaking, Israel treats East Jerusalemite Palestinians as uh, in their own homes as unwanted immigrants. Um, so uh, the, the purpose is to diminish Palestinian presence in the city, like like you have uh, suggested, um, and by having them uh, move out of their homes. Um, the area that Israel annexed immediately after the war as East Jerusalem actually is much larger than what used to be East Jerusalem under Jordanian rule. It's it's a big swath of uh, the West Bank and included um, uh, Palestinian villages and uh, and a lot of land, where, again, the guiding principle is maximum land with minimum Palestinians on it as possible. So, for example, it annexed 
the lands of a certain village, but not the village itself, so not the villagers. So it disconnected um, the, the people from their uh, lands in, in this way. And as I said, um, the, the residents who were annexed into Israel uh, became permanent residents, not citizens, which means, first of all, that they can't vote for the parliament. They can only vote for the Jerusalem municipality. Um, uh, they can't get elected or vote. Um, and it's also a, a, a status legally that can be revoked much more easily than citizenship. And Israel has revoked um, the permanent resident status of uh, thousands and thousands of Palestinians over the years. Um, other things that it did as, as part of this uh, demographic engineering project in Jerusalem um, is to erect 11 Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, in the annexed territory, uh, which for all intents and purposes are settlements. Um, and it uh, works to encourage uh, also by working hand in hand uh, and supporting these uh, settler NGOs um, to have uh, Jewish settlers move to live in the midst of Palestinian neighborhoods like in Hebron. So, so here too, there's a process and we kind of call it a process of Hebronization where uh, you have quite extreme, uh, in terms of ideology, quite extreme settlers moving to live in the midst of a Palestinian population with a lot of security forces and the same kind of effects that that, that has um, uh, quite detrimental effects on the lives of the Palestinians um, in these neighborhoods. And broadly speaking, there has been no real significant investment in infrastructure or services in, in any of these communities, in any of these neighborhoods since 1967. So there's a dire lack of medical facilities, of education, you know, of classrooms, um, uh, garbage disposal management, all of those things. Um, the municipality simply uh, does not provide uh, uh, to these uh, neighborhoods. Um, and interestingly, currently there's a bill that is making its way through the parliament, the Greater Jerusalem Bill, which I think kind of encapsulates the the, the story of East Jerusalem, if you will. Um, what it is designed to do is to um, uh, take about 140,000 settlers from settlements in the West Bank around East Jerusalem, make them eligible to vote for the municipality of Jerusalem. So making their municipalities sort of daughter municipalities of Jerusalem and then have the residents uh, like a double right to vote for their own municipalities in the settlements and also in East Jerusalem and take about the same number of Palestinians that are currently residents of Jerusalem and transfer them out. So take away their right to vote to the Jerusalem municipality. So this is the kind of demographic engineering that is taking place um, uh, that is uh, designed in this case to ensure that there's a Jewish majority um, for, uh, you know, for elections to the Jerusalem uh, municipality. Um, and interestingly, Palestinians actually since 1967, uh, uh, for the most part, have boycotted the, uh, um, the elections in Jerusalem. So even though they're granted the right to vote, uh, not to the parliament again, but just to the municipality, most of them don't do that. Because um, they don't see it as legitimate. Exactly. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't recognize the annexation. Um, but had they decided to do that one day, they actually would have a lot of power in the municipality. And so this law kind of 
is designed to, in advance, prevent that from, from happening. And in terms of carving up the Palestinian population in East Jerusalem, which is also happening in the West Bank with uh, demarcation of areas, is that to prevent the Palestinians from getting together? Because we have strength in numbers. And so if they get together and they would protest together, is this preventing them from accessing their neighbours? Is, is that another reason? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about these different categories, right, of East Jerusalem, of the West Bank, and of Gaza, um, because Israel created different forms of control for each of these places. So, so that is exactly the, the intention, is to separate the population, to break up the society, um, to prevent uh, um, any kind of normalcy of political life and organization, self-organization of Palestinians. To prevent self-determination. Yeah. I'd like to now move to Gaza. In 2005, Israel purportedly withdrew from the Gaza Strip and relinquished power to the Palestinian authorities there. However, Israel appears to continue to control the borders and sea and appears to be strictly controlling imports and exports to Gaza. In effect, it's strangling its economy. What control do you perceive that Israel exerts over Gaza currently? So I think the first thing to say is that Gaza is the site of an ongoing humanitarian crisis. Um, that is a result of Israel's policy. Israeli policy is designed to leave Gaza on the brink of um, unlivability, if, if you will. Um, so uh, since 2007, um, uh, Israel has been laying Gaza under siege, uh, making its almost 2 million residents uh, about half of which are under 18 uh, prisoners you know, on this little strip of land, which is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Um, Israel has withdrew its forces from on the ground in Gaza and withdrew its settler population from Gaza in 2005. But it has a very effective control uh, over the strip from the outside. It controls all the border crossings, except for the Rafah crossing, which is controlled by Egypt. Um, that, for its own reasons, collaborates with Israel to a certain extent on this policy of siege. But the Rafah uh, uh, border crossing that Egypt controls, in any case, is not uh, designed for the movement of goods, but only of people, and it is closed most of the year. Um, so, other than that, all of the other border crossings are controlled by uh, Israel, and Israel controls the airspace and the water space. So, um, so one side of the Gaza Strip is the Mediterranean Sea, and, and that is controlled by Israel as well. Um, so effectively, it controls uh, almost anything that goes in and out of uh, the Strip. And uh, as we know, um, Gazans have been uh, constructing these tunnels to bypass that. Um, now Israel is constructing an um, underground wall. So it's kind of out-trumping Trump um, <laughs> with, this, uh, with this ludicrous idea that you can somehow isolate Gaza from the world, really. Like, this is what the policy is doing. Primarily, um, uh, separating Gaza from the West Bank, sort of in the line of what we were just talking about, but also from the rest of the world more broadly. Um, and uh, this has brought, the siege has brought, you know, a complete economic collapse. Um, currently, there's about a 44% unemployment rate. 
which is much higher uh, for women and for uh, young adults. And 80% of the population are dependent on humanitarian assistance uh, to sustain themselves. Um, Israel also severely restricts the access of Gaza's uh, fishermen to the sea and of, uh, of the farmers um, to their farming land that is uh, right uh, around the border. So there's a, a big strip of land um, where uh, Israel restricts access to, to that farming land um, on the other side of the border, right? So in the Gaza Strip itself. Um, on top of this, as the listener, I'm sure remember the listeners. I'm sure remember um, there have been these periodical, large-scale assaults over the Strip and its population in 2008, 9, 2012, and 2014. These repeated military operations that have wreaked havoc on the Strip um, and uh, with you know thousands of casualties. Um, And, uh, and, and then the inability to recover from, from these uh, attacks because of the siege. Yeah. So Israel's ostensible reason, again, is security. It has to look through all the items, look through dual-use items uh, to prevent that going in so that there's no attack upon Israel. That's the ostensible reason, right? Now, you mentioned that they also prevent fishermen going into the sea Uh, I don't know how a fisherman can ever be a security threat. But really, if I'm, if I'm in Gaza, I'm living there and I need food and water, how am I getting my food and water if the agricultural land is outside the Gaza Strip, in effect, and Israel controls imports? Israel can stop food entering if it wanted to, correct? So, you know, another way to look at this story broadly, once again, not just for Gaza, but the occupation as a whole, is Israel taking the means of livelihood from the hands of one people and transferring them to the hands of another people, right? Taking the stuff, the basic stuff that people need in order to sustain themselves, which generally speaking is land and water, and transferring those to the hands of its own population. Like the resources in this place are, are those primarily. There aren't, you know, there isn't gold, there's no oil, there's nothing like that. It's really like the basic stuff of life that's, that, that life is made of. Um, so, so like I said, with 80% of the people being dependent on humanitarian assistance in order to sustain themselves, that's, that's exactly what that means, right? Um, there needs to be somehow like a replacement of people's own ability to provide for themselves. Um, uh, yeah, in terms of, 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 uh, of water, um, 95% of the water that's pumped in Gaza is undrinkable, so people have to You know, people that are already part of this impoverished population have to buy uh, purified uh, uh, water. Which is the most expensive. Yes. And, uh, and, and this relates to, so the water crisis in Gaza relates to um, a larger uh, uh, infrastructure uh, failure in Gaza, which is the electricity crisis that has been ongoing for years and is constantly deteriorating. Um, One way to count it is beginning in 2006 when Israel bombed uh, Gaza's only power plant. And, and again, because of the siege that began just a year later, um, uh, there hasn't been a real ability to, um, uh, to fix the power plant. Um, so currently, um, residents in Gaza only get electricity for about four hours each day um, on average. 
um, and without knowing ever when the electricity is going to come. So life really evolves completely around this, this crisis right now. Like whenever there's electricity, people will charge up their batteries, charge up their generators. Um, you know, they all sort of became um, amateur electricians uh, um, uh, because they've been coerced to. And, um, and uh, you know, like all of these things that we take completely for granted in our own lives are denied from, uh, from these people. And then on the larger scale, of course, you know, the effects are dire because medical facilities cannot function normally. Um, as well as uh, educational institutions and so on and so forth. And then the water and the sewage uh, issue are related to that. Without the power plant providing uh, electricity regularly, there, there can't be any sewage management. There can't be any functioning uh, viable water system. So, um, so again, this is, what, this is what we mean when we say that this is a humanitarian crisis that, a result, that is a result of policy. Is, had Israel wanted to, it could have uh, uh, easily uh, uh, you know, provided electricity for Gaza, um, uh, lifted some of the restrictions on exports and uh, imports and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, on the ground, particularly with respect to water, we're talking about uh, effects on the ground that are irreparable. Gaza's coastal aquifer has been so polluted and depleted, the groundwater overpumped that... I, I don't know how they can fix that. I mean, this is, even if they had full independence over the Gaza Strip now, how do you replace that water? Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, one of the interesting um, issues with this way of thinking of, like, isolating Gaza from the rest of the world, um, and, 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 of course, this is something that's one of the proofs that is, that, that, that is impossible is uh, what's happening with the sewage, because the sewage that is being spilled into the Mediterranean then goes into the southern Israeli coastal cities, right? And the disease that that brings will affect Israel, eventually will affect Israeli citizens as well. So there's a very, uh, uh, very real short-sightedness uh, uh, on part of Israeli policymakers in this regard. Yes, and viruses can be, uh, and diseases can be a great equalizer, right? Because they don't know what they nationality you are, they don't discriminate. Yeah. If it affects people in Israel, then the, then the Israeli government will be forced by its own population to change its policies. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'd like to move on to the demarcation of the West Bank into non-contiguous areas. And so we've talked about demarcation of the Palestinian territories between the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem and the West Bank, but there's also a demarcation within the West Bank. The interim agreement between Israel and the PLO petitioned the West Bank into three non-contiguous areas, A, B, and C, with C being an area that comprises 60% of the West Bank. Uh, may you please explain to our audience the rationale for this demarcation, the restrictive policies that Israel pursues in Area C, the ability of Palestinians to utilize and exploit the land in Area C, and freedom of movement for Palestinians between the different demarcated areas? Sure. In terms of the West Bank itself, um, the, the 60% of it that comprises Area C actually is continuous. So it's, it's areas A and B that are not continuous. Areas A and B are these enclaves of land where most of the Palestinian population is concentrated on. Oh. 
Um, this division was done in the mid-90s as part of the Oslo Accords, and uh, it was supposed to be temporary. So, so the division of the West Bank into these three categories of control, areas A, B, and C, uh, was supposed to only last for five years until the final agreement is reached. But that final agreement was never reached, and instead it became uh, 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 one of the main mechanisms for the occupation to become more entrenched and for Israel's control over the people of the West Bank to become more uh, overpowering. So originally, when the division was made, the logic behind it was not geographic. So it's not like areas A is you know, the north and area B is the middle or anything like that. It was demographic. So wherever most Palestinians lived, that was declared areas A and B. And the Palestinian Authority, was, which was you know, created as part of the Oslo Accords, was given limited authority uh, to govern certain aspects of life in, in those areas. But those areas, um, like we said, are disconnected from one another. And, and very importantly, they're disconnected from the land reserves, from the resources that are needed for their future development. So now, so many years have, uh, uh, you know, so many years later, the population has expanded, but they have nowhere to expand to. Um, because where the resources are, where the land reserves that are needed are, is in Area C. This is where all the Israeli settlements are. And this is where almost all of the resources that are needed for future development of all residents of the West Bank is. So in a way, you can sort of say, this is where the stuff that Israel wants is. This Area is C. Area and C. is that where the Jordan Valley, which is very fertile, is? Area C? So almost all... See, that, that is the... Okay, I really recommend for, uh, for the listeners to go on, on our website and see the map, um, which colors, distinguishes by color between these areas, and then you can sort of understand it more easily. The vast majority of the Jordan Valley has been declared as Area C, absolutely. Mm. Uh, but Jericho, for example, is Area A, right? Because this is, uh, this is a city where a lot of Palestinians live, right? That's the logic. And, and there are 165 of these enclaves of areas A and B that are floating on the, in the West Bank in the sea of, of Israeli control, which is Area C. Um, so, um, so Israel really de facto treats Area C as meant to serve its own interests exclusively. This is on the one hand, right? This is where the settlements are. This is where fertile land is, water resources, uh, open spaces, all of those things. And the other side of it is it's working to diminish Palestinian presence in these areas. So again, it's this equation that we've highlighted earlier, right? Maximum land and resources, minimum Palestinians on it. Um, <clears throat> So the there are Palestinians who live in Area C, right? Uh, anything between 200 and 300,000 Palestinians. Um, we don't have the exact number. Um, but in this area, Israel reserves for itself uh, full authority of civil matters as well as uh, security matters, military uh, matters. And because it has full authority over planning and construction, that enables it to not approve for Palestinians master plans for their villages and towns. If you don't have an approved master plan, as a rule, you're not connected to the power grid or the water system. Um, and any construction that you do in your community is deemed illegal. So then Israel can come and demolish. So a farmer who lays a pipe 
to bring water from a spring to their field or to their community, civil administration will come and uh, cut that pipe. Uh, community that is, like so many of these communities, is not connected to the power grid. Um, uh, an NGO would help them construct uh, solar panels so that they can finally, you know, after decades living this way, have electricity to their, uh, for, for their schools, for their community. Civil administration will come and confiscate uh, this equipment. And recently, I believe there was a village in Area C. There was an NGO that came in and gave them solar power yeah. for their preschool, and Israel demolished that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jubadib is the, is the name of the village, and uh, Kometmi is the uh, NGO. Exactly. So this is, this is a, a recent example. And uh, again, like, what is the logic? What is the, what is the, how can you possibly justify this kind of cruelty, right? Well, if you are trying to create such a coercive living environment for these people to make life so difficult and unbearable for them in the places where they are, so that they choose, quote-unquote, to move uh, into one of these enclaves of land, right? So essentially for all of these communities, what Israel would wish is for the vast majority of them to move uh, into one of these uh, uh, enclaves of limited Palestinian Authority control. Part of this is also manufacturing a water crisis. This is another heritage of the Oslo Accords, is that the water distribution is uh, highly discriminatory and, and unequal in, in the West Bank, whether we're talking about the uh, mountain aquifer, uh, which is the, the largest shared water resource, resource in the West Bank, which Israel takes 80% of, according to the Oslo Accords, in practice, it's actually more nowadays because so many years have passed and because of drilling and because of uh, all kinds of uh, development projects that were supposed to take place but eventually weren't um, on part of the Palestinians, they actually get even less than that. Um, and I, I think it's a stunning example of, of the discrimination in terms of water allocation is, is this figure. Uh, in the Jordan Valley, uh, 10,000 uh, settlers live, and the amount of water that they get is equal to a third of all water that is available to all Palestinians in the West Bank. Just these 10,000 people yeah. living in the, in the Jordan Valley. Then, when we look at these communities that are at risk of being expelled from their land, who live in Area C, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of as worse as it gets uh, uh, in terms of, of the water allocation. So the, um, the World Health Organization recommends for every person to have a, an average of 100 liter of water per day. This is not just for personal, it sounds a lot, but it's not just for personal consumption. It, this, also, this figure also includes uh, industry, you know, medical facilities, all, all of those things. Um, in Israel proper, the uh, average usage of uh, water per person per day is around 287 liters. Okay, so mm -hmm. much, much more than, uh, than the minimum that is uh, recommended by the World Health Organization, thankfully. For Palestinians who are connected to the water grid, like those who live in areas uh, A and B primarily, um, the average is 79. So just below. below. In the areas that we're talking about, where these communities are not connected to the water system, it can go as low as 20 liters per person per day. 
So this is really the rates of a dire humanitarian crisis. I mean, you would see numbers like this in terms of water shortage in places like Darfur, you know, in places where there's a fully-fledged uh, humanitarian crisis taking place. But again, when we're talking about these communities in the Jordan Valley or in other parts of Area C, this is a policy that is designed to do that. Um, so, uh, so again, this is, this, is, uh, this is part of this larger story where Israel has been systematically taking the means of the livelihood from the hands of one people and transferring it to the hands of its own people. You can see it so very clearly um, in Area C more than anywhere else. So Israel takes the majority of the mountain aquifer and denies Palestinians use of the Jordan River. Any water project requires a permit from the Joint Water Committee, which Israel controls. You would need a permit to, for any construction that you want to do, right? So even including water construction. Yeah, including digging a well, um, and and you know, or or um, uh, rehabilitating a spring. Um, so 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 any any type of these uh, constructions that that are the most basic things that people need in order to sustain themselves and that they have been using in order to sustain themselves for hundreds of years uh, is deemed illegal. I'd like to now focus on Israeli military law. However, it seems that even though the West Bank is under military law, that there's actually a dual system in place where Palestinian people are under military law, but Israeli settlers, and in fact, anybody who's not Palestinian, is not under military law, so that if Palestinians are accused of a crime, they go to a military court but Israeli settlers and tourists go to civil courts. May you please elaborate more on this dual system of law and what rights are denied by Palestinians in these military courts? Yeah, so I think, you know, you, you said the gist of it. Israel maintains its military uh, court system um, where uh, thousands of Palestinians are trialed each year with an almost automatic conviction. Um, and uh, uh, as you said, this, this can be for, you know, security-related offenses or uh, for forgetting to use a blinker in your car. And it doesn't matter if you're a Palestinian, you go to the military court automatically. Um, formerly, these courts are also authorized to prosecute Israelis. But already in the 80s, um, Israel veered away um, from that possibility and uh, uh, chooses to prosecute uh, its own settler population in Israeli civil courts under Israeli civil law. So that's creating a completely separate uh, enforcement system for Palestinians and for non-Palestinians. Um, I think, you know, beyond the technicalities of it, uh, it's, it's important to acknowledge that these military orders and the military law is all created by Israeli soldiers. And Palestinians have no way of influencing the military orders that control their lives. Um, and, and really, they have no, no way of participating in any significant way in a mechanism, uh, in a decision-making mechanism about their, uh, regarding their own lives. Um, and and that the military courts, as such, uh, can never be a neutral player, right? They are designed to enforce the control of one people over another. This is what they're, they're meant to do. So in that respect, Israel also routinely utilized administrative detention, and I'm not sure if it continues to utilize administrative detention for Palestinians suspected of crimes. Uh, so by holding people without indictment for extended periods, does Israel continue to do this? And what has yeah. been the practice yeah. in previous years? Yes, yeah, so it still does. Um, it's a very extreme practice, 
um, uh, because it means that a person is held under arrest by definition without being accused of any wrongdoing. Um, it is a preventative measure. So uh, it's supposedly meant to prevent a person from committing a crime in the future. There's no need for an indictment, no need for a trial, uh, and no need for a conviction uh, in order for that person to be held, uh, imprisoned indefinitely. So uh, uh, on paper, um, the administrative deta detention is for six months, but then that can be extended, that period can be extended. Um, so uh, Israel has been using this practice routinely and uh, has imprisoned thousands of Palestinians, including minors, uh, in this way for periods ranging between a few months and a few years. And, uh, and, and, and yes, it still does. There are, there are a few hundred Palestinians held uh, in Israeli prisons in this way at each given moment. And uh, this is part of the subjugation of Palestinians uh, to, uh, to Israeli control. So it's hard to imagine um, any change to this practice coming uh, uh, without a significant change in the, you know, without an end to the occupation, really. And is there an appeal process for administrative detention? Uh, not really. I mean, even the evidence that is, uh, that is uh, brought against the Palestinian is, uh, um, oh, what's the word? Um, <laughs> it's like they, they can't see it. They're, they're not. They're, they're not. Uh, they're not aware of what are. The oh, they're not are. aware of what the charges are because yeah. they don't need to be inducted. They're not. They don't have access to an attorney. Right. So it's secret. Yes, the whole secret. Is secret. Yeah, exactly. Okay. How does the application of military law in the West Bank and the routine use of crowd control weapons, including the continuing use of rubber-coated metal bullets, which the Israeli police stopped using within Israel after recommendations by the Or Commission as to the bullets' lack of precision and their ability to cause serious harm and fatalities, impede free speech and assembly in the West Bank? So Israel... Uh basically frames any Palestinian opposition to the occupation uh, as some form of unlawful incitement. So from Israel's perspective, Palestinians by definition simply don't have a right to free speech. This is the departure point for Order uh, 101, uh, which was a military 101. order. Oh, that's a... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's very ominous yes. <laughs> that Room 101 in 1984 and so forth. Oh. But <laughs> out of all the numbers they could have picked, maybe they picked it on purpose. I don't know. I'm saying go on. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, there are also some, some other links in, uh, in Israeli military um, uh, history there um, that, that are ominous. But um, uh, this order, its name is the Order Regarding Prohibition of Incitement and Hostile Propaganda Actions. It was issued um, immediately, almost after the occupation began. And, uh, and its departure point is that Palestinians uh, just don't have uh, a vested freedom of uh, expression uh, or of protest. So even nonviolent resistance and civil uh, protest um, are forbidden. So if I'm walking down the street, uh, there's five other people with me, I have a placard that says, I need more access to water, and this occupation is illegal, I'm going to be arrested. Uh, you won't necessarily be arrested. I mean, it sort of depends on the context, but uh, 
more likely than not, the security forces will be there to disperse the, the unlawful assembly. Um, and if I were within Israel, that would be completely legal right. and an effectuation of my constitutional rights. Right. So now I'd like to move on to the use of collective punishment or shaming punishment. I understand Israel has reportedly sprayed the malodorous skunk in some Palestinian neighborhoods and has employed house demolitions as a punitive measure. Now, I also understand that there was a military report in 2005 that concluded that house demolitions do not deter violence, but in fact escalate it, that the policy was then stopped, but it has been renewed in the last few years. Is Israel continuing to demolish houses as a punitive measure? And what could be its rationale? Because it has been, because the military has opined previously that it not only fails to deter, but only escalates conflict. And what other collective or shaving punishments are currently used in the occupied territories? Um, so with regards to punitive home demolitions, yes, they're still carried out by Israel. Um, this is another very extreme measure because, again, um, it is inflicted upon people who, by definition, are not accused of any wrongdoing. These are the families um, of uh, Palestinians who committed an attack against Israelis. Um, when Israel renewed this practice in 2014, uh, it gave no rationale. There was no reasoning for why, uh, or no justification for why um, uh, the, the, the practice has now continued. The state sort of claimed that it never really intended to ever stop. Um, and formally, the reasoning given, the pretext that is given always is that this is not a, a collective uh, punishment, this is not a, a form of punishment, but of deterrence. So again, it's sort of like the security, it always goes back to a security pretext in one way or another. Um, in terms of other forms of collective punishment, I mean, I think it sort of depends on what you define as such, but um, uh, severe movement restrictions is, is another example, like after uh, an attack is carried out against Israelis, uh, not only the family of the attacker would be uh, targeted, but uh, the entire community. So, uh, so much more, so whole villages, and not just the village where the attacker came out of, but sometimes just, you know, surrounding villages would be put under siege uh, for a while. Um, there can be confiscations of property, of cars, of money uh, from people's homes just in, in these villages. Um, the revocation of work permits, so the permits to go into Israel uh, for, for work from family members, um, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But again, if you sort of like zoom out, I mean, the siege of, of Gaza in itself after the Hamas election can be seen as a form of collective punishment as well. So as an occupying power, Israel must account for its actions. What accountability is there for Israeli soldiers that have either recklessly or intentionally injured or killed innocent civilians? And what restitution is available for people and their families that have been injured or killed by the military officers? Has Israel provided immunity de jure or de facto to the IDF for its actions? And if it has, does this immunity extend to all is IDF actions or just actions against uh, Palestinian people so it doesn't apply to settlers and tourists, for instance? Um, yeah, so there is no real accountability um, for, uh, for Israel's actions against Palestinians. There's no mechanism in place that holds individuals or 
uh, or, or the larger mechanisms uh, accountable um, for, for these policies. Um, the, the military uh, law enforcement system being a case in point, which I want to expand on a little bit because uh, this is part of the changes that took place over the years in our, in Betzelem's work, um, which I think are interesting. Um, for 25 years, Betzelem cooperated with the military law enforcement system in investigations. We would share our investigations um, with our investigators. Um, if we had video documentation or any kind of uh, uh, supporting documentation, we would share it. We would sit in meetings with them and we would recommend for Palestinians also to press charges and seek justice through this system. This was true for 25 years. After doing that for uh, such a long time and uh, cooperating with the system with regards to 739 cases, the organization came to the conclusion and a decision to not do that anymore, mm. with the conclusion being that the system actually is not designed to provide justice to victims. It is not designed to hold accountable those that need to be held accountable, but rather to maintain a facade of a functioning legal system. And so as a human rights organization, if we cooperate with the system, we lend from our own credibility um, to the system that ultimately is designed to stabilize uh, the the kind of oppressive structure as a whole and allow it to continue to exist. And so, of course, we don't want to take part in that. Um, just in terms of the numbers, uh, you know, out of those 739 cases, um, uh, only in 25 cases were there uh, presses uh, charged against uh, uh, soldiers. Um, almost half that, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, almost twice that number um, in, in twice of the cases, uh, the files were lost. <laughs> so the mad corps couldn't locate the files in 44 cases. Um, but it's not just the numbers themselves. It's also, um, you know, cooperating with the system on so many cases for such a long time gave us very detailed information about the inner workings of the system. And, and, and this is really what the decision was, was based on. And so now um, we, we don't share the information. And we also don't recommend for Palestinians to seek justice. Of course, victims are free to seek justice in whichever way they, they want, but this would not be our recommendation for them. We, don't, we have no trust in, in the system as such. Um, then on the civil front, um, it, it's sort of a, 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 a similar mirroring of the situation. So for 20 years, Israel strove towards and then finally achieved the current situation where Palestinians that were hurt by Israeli security forces, uh, you know, by mistake. Uh, the, the, this person was in their uh, home's kitchen, standing by the window. There was some event outside and they got hurt um, and they need to go through rehabilitation for the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, very expensive procedures. They will not see a dime from Israel. Um, it's interesting because B'Tselem, 20 years ago, received a fax to the office, which had basically this kind of, uh, of uh, uh, immunity that the state wanted to grant itself, uh, um, written as a law, as a law proposal. And it was a big uproar, and at the time it was discarded. Uh, but then incrementally, little by little, through small changes to the law and its interpretation in the courts, the same situation mm. has been achieved. Um, and then finally, the Supreme Court 
um, has given a legal seal of approval to almost any form of violation of Palestinian human rights. Um, so it has never intervened significantly in the what, but if anything, in the how, you know, just, just how badly can you hurt Palestinians by using administrative detention or by uh, uh, erecting the separation barrier and so on and so forth. So really, currently, there are no mechanisms within Israeli, uh, the Israeli state that uh, hold Israel or Israelis accountable for the actions when it comes to hurting Palestinians. So how do you progress? That's the real question here. Israel has occupied the West Bank now for 50 years. If Israel formally annexes the territory, it would be contrary to international law. Of course, the whole occupation is contrary to international law. But if it does so, and if it continues its current policy, which we've discussed includes the dual system of law, discriminatory water, energy, construction policies, that would entrench and formalise this discriminatory dual system, which is also against international law. On the other hand, if we suppose that Israel will relinquish control of the territory, what is left? 50 years of occupation appears to have enfeebled a viable independent state through the consistent denial of resources and exploitation of these resources, increased land expropriation, demarcation and separation of territory. Additionally, the increase in settlements and the development of infrastructure linking the settlements to Israel appears to be a permanent state of affairs. Is the current government thus seeking a permanent state of impermanence in the occupied territories and in the West Bank in particular? Absolutely. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that since 1967, we see this parallel movement of two populations. On the one hand, Israel transferring its own population into the occupied territories, which is against international law. And on the other hand, Palestinians being allowed to um, live in these ever-shrinking spaces, um, you know, uh, working to forcibly transfer uh, these communities, like we discussed in Area C, which actually is a war crime, also against international law. These two policies um, have been uh, advanced by all Israeli governments since 1967, from you know, the extreme right wing like we have right now as our government, but also from the center and the left. So first of all, that needs to be acknowledged. That, is, uh, that, that runs deeper than simply uh, you know, having a right wing uh, government uh, currently or not. Um, uh, with regards to the occupation, by the way, being legal or not, uh, according to international law, there is a scholarly debate there, which I don't really want to get into, but, um, you know, whether or not an occupation is, is legal after so many years. Um, but, but certainly Israeli policies are against international law, right? So these policies that we're describing. Um, and, uh, and like we said earlier, I think after 50 years, no one can seriously claim that this is a temporary situation, Right. Uh, so, so part of the logic of international law with regard to an occupation and its legality is the idea that it is a temporary situation. But certainly Israeli policy is designed to set facts on the ground uh, and, and uh, for the, occup the occupation itself as an enterprise is designed to become more entrenched. Um, in terms of, of, of the future, um, you know, it's, uh, we are in the midst of this process, it's a dynamic process, it's not, there is no status quo. Israel is actually continuously advancing this project. Um, what we as an organization draw hope from um, is 
the, the, generally speaking, the international community has been very forgiving, very lenient towards Israeli policies with regards to the occupied territories and its treatment of Palestinians. But wherever the international community has set its foot down, this is where Israel has stopped. Even just in terms of, uh, for example, the story that we talked about uh, uh, moments ago, Jubadib, this, this village uh, in Area C, it was uh, an, a pretty um, pointed, specific pressure coming from the Netherlands who have contributed this equipment on the Israeli government that had made it so that the equipment was returned to the village. And now it's, the solar panels are, are back there now. Um, That's great to hear. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, so, so, you know, sometimes there are, there are small victories like this, but on a larger scale, you can say that just the very fact that there are still Palestinians living in Area C is a testament to the power of the international community to uh, effectively apply pressure on Israel when it wants to. Um, right now, there are two villages in Area C that are at imminent risk of being expelled, of being completely demolished, being forcibly transferred. Um, after years and years of, of uh, legal struggle. So one of them is Susia in South Hebron Hills, and the other is Khan al-Ahmar, um, east, just east of Jerusalem, on the way leading down to Jericho. Um, and both of these villages, in the past at least, have uh, had significant support by the international community. And, uh, and, and indeed, indeed, they're still, you know, they're still there holding, holding to their lands. And we hope that, um, that this kind of, uh, of pressure continues and intensifies because without it, we don't see a meaningful change uh, in Israeli policy. I think when the political will is there, obviously, then anything is possible. It's not like these processes cannot be stopped or reversed. Um, um, but, uh, but there has to be a, a political incentive to do so, and currently Israel simply does not have that. So you see change more from the imposition of pressure outside, from the international community, rather than within Israel? At this point, I mean, I think as an organization, we invest a lot of resources addressing the Israeli public. Uh, you know, I can tell you that I, as a spokesperson, I deal with Israeli media much more than I deal with international media, even though I'm in charge of both. And we will never abandon that role. And I think that has to continue. We think that that has to continue. Um, but if you look at the conditions currently, um, we don't see anything changing in a significant way without that pressure being applied on Israel uh, um, to, you know, to begin with. So, for example, I mean, this is why our executive director about a year ago um, was at the UN Security Council, addressing the council and, uh, and, 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 and making this case. And indeed, um, just a few months later, uh, it passed Resolution 2334, which reiterated the international consensus around the illegality of the settlements um, and uh, has also called on member states to differentiate in the relevant dealings between uh, the settlements and Israel proper. Um, so, so this is a step, for example, that we would highly support for the member states to follow up um, on, on this fifth clause of Resolution 2334 um, to differentiate uh, between the occupied territories and, and Israel proper. Of course, none of these steps taken in isolation will change the reality in a significant way, but it will be a step in the right direction. 
So currently we have an Israeli government that is not only following its previous policies but actually <clears throat> exacerbating the situation on the ground yeah. and, uh, and expediting, you might say, um, the removal of Palestinians and the extraction of land. And what is needed is international solidarity, in your opinion, as an impetus to cause change within Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hope that we have that. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you very much, Amit, for your time today. Uh, we have been talking about very disappointing but pertinent issues, but it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.